Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. With me today is a guest who comes on a lot and uh, always seems to get really good reactions from the listeners, uh, my partner, Jordan Knopf. Jordan, thanks for coming on. How's it going? Great. Once again, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's always, we, the, the, the feedback we always get for you is, is really high. So, you know, we try to get at least once a quarter, get you on. Um, big day today in the economy, right? So when Jordan came in, he said like, okay, what are we talking about? And I said, macroeconomy. He said, well, what's the, did you see the Dow just now? And of course, I hadn't. He's like, it's down 1,200 points, right? So I have all these questions for you around inflation and jobs reports in the market. But let's take a step back. Why would the market, so core, core inflation was up 0.6%, total was up 0.1%. Those don't sound like huge numbers. So why would the market move so drastically? So I think that it, it all ties back to to expectations about the Fed increasing interest rates and how effective that would have been with decreasing inflation numbers. And next thing you know, um, people are ready to say there's going to be one more rate increase because the Fed, what a great job they're doing managing this inflation. Numbers yeah. come in today. Next thing you know, it's actually going the wrong direction. Um, and the market reacted terribly. So. What happens there? Interest rates go up. The Fed's going to fight this to the very end, and that's terrible for 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 especially high growth, particularly technology stocks. So as that as of right now, I think this Nasdaq is down five percent. Why is it terrible? So you're discounting back future growth, cash flows. The you know the profitability of these companies is so far in the future yeah. um, that you know your the the interest rate factors into how much you discount the value of future cash flows back yeah. to today. And so that number goes up, the valuations go down. So the, the, the kind of formula you gave has been kind of the conventional logic for a while. But do you feel like the market, just like the rest of society, is just more volatile these days than, than it used to be? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's the, there's no, I mean, there's no question that it feels that way. Um, the data, statistically, I would want to kind of take a look at that. There's always these, everybody knows there's these huge days. It just feels like there's a lot of them. And it feels like they happen at the tail. It feels very technology driven from, from an algorithmic trading side, from, from hedge funds, meaning that, you know, trades being done in the final 30 minutes of the day, swinging the market wildly. Um, and I think that also you just have a much more active retail market. Right. So it's hard. Ironically, technology has enabled the retail market. Technology has enabled the hedge funds. And as a result, technology stocks are getting pummeled. It's always our fault. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so, so big picture, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but as you're thinking about the economy over the next 12 to 24 months, what assumptions are you making? So I think that in, in, as it, so as the economy broader based and then just like as it impacts us as VCs. Um, so the, the first thing is that, all right, the, you have to have an opinion about where rates are going to go. And there's enough macroeconomists that they can, they can come up with different opinions and fight about that all day. Yeah. I think that we are you know, grounded in a belief at this point, at least, like inflation is insane. We have to get, especially living in New York, we hear it every day, every time you know, somebody who works at Tusk comes back and says, I just got my lease renewal rate. You know, it's, it's very apparent what's happening there uh, on the rents and which are the biggest driver. And it's not just New York, it's across the US. Um, so there, that, 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 that is the key barometer here. Um, the interesting part is the fact that the labor market is still really tight. So you would expect this to shake out in a way where you know employment, unemployment may increase, uh, given the fact that interest rates go up, it makes it harder for corporations to borrow money. Right. Um, therefore, they slow their uh, headlines are all over the place with you know hiring freezes and layoffs and so on. 
that's just now beginning to get, you know, kind of conceptualized and synthesized by the market. Similar to the fact that, you know, technically, whenever rates go up, housing prices should come down, right? right. But it takes a while. So it's anomalous that when interest rates go up, inflation goes up with it. One's supposed to counteract the other. Except for in this like terrifying scenario where everything is going in the where you have a, a systemic period of stagnation. Yeah, so that's what I was getting to. And then, then those need the other example. And then t tell me why, which is normally speaking, um, when jobs reports are good, market goes down because they're worried about increased costs and, and vice versa. Are we in a world right now where just the normal rules and equations don't apply? It's a great question. It's um, it's one where you know I think that that. It's a store. It's it's. There's unique macro trends that are just impacting everybody and everything. And that if you're in the technology sector, you're taking a beating, regardless of what regardless of what's happening um, with your underlying company's financials. Yeah. Um, same with like the SPAC trade, and it, these are just trends that are all occurring. Um, you know. Then on the flip side of that, there's there are you know things that are not unique. That are not esoteric. Where, <clears throat> you know, looking at at the way that that. Um, now, that institutional investors are thinking about allocating capital. Um, you know, you're seeing we're coming off of banner years of for venture capital, and we're seeing some behaviors that are a little bit more intuitive to us as as professional investors, where you're recycling, you're taking those proceeds and you're reinvesting them back into your most, you know, your the most beat up sectors out there. So where is that? Like right now, technology. So you know, I think that there is. There is some 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 continued money that is st stabilizing um, inflows into into the public markets, but that's anyone's guess how long that'll last. Right. Um, and there's the private equity guys are still on the sidelines, and you know once we start to see that crowd, um, that's whenever they if they enter the market, um, yeah, they're typically pretty good at, at timing what's close to the bottom. Yeah, it's exactly. Jordan always likes to say that we're not paid to time the market, and that's kind of one nice thing about being a venture capitalist. But private equity is the exact opposite. Right? Yeah, it just feels like they just you know they have a very the there's. They they are they have better data. They have much more of it, and you know they they've been doing this for quite some time. And there there's there's a, there's a there is a silver bullet to that um, that playbook. I, I would say that you know typically people will say that that a bear market ends whenever that last retail investor just goes in all to cash, right? So like once they tap out of the market, um, and so it's uh you know right now I think that a lot of people are focused on. Um, you know, really, really figuring out how, how inflation and how this tight labor market is going to impact them. And what, you know, there are a lot of challenges that people have with, with the rising rates because now all of a sudden people are trapped in homes that they may have purchased during the pandemic because it's more expensive for them to, 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 to sell their house and get a higher interest rate on a new mortgage on even a cheaper home. So they could downsize, but their monthly payment would go up. So do, do you think that a, another factor that might be impacting the market now that historically hasn't is crypto in the sense that a lot of retail investors hold both they invest in crypto, they invest in stocks, crypto valuations have taken a beating. As a result, they feel less wealthy, they are less wealthy than they were before, and they want to be more liquid, so they sell. You know, I, I, what you're saying, it makes that's that's purely logical. <clears throat> I'm, could be totally wrong. You know, well, yeah. it, it, it's, it's the the thing that most people don't, um, you know, they don't really sit like have that moment where, well, I heard about you know. 
Bitcoin back in this this day, right? And I would have been uh, made hundreds of millions of dollars. And right. no, you wouldn't. If you you would have gotten ten made ten x your money and sold it. You know, maybe maybe you would have made a hundred times your money, but you would have never been patient enough to wait that whole. Like that's the reality of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that. Part of it is, you know, people are 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 just the, the market, and people are behaving very similarly in the sense that they just want to know the uh, uncertainty is not 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 a fun game to be in. Like right now, that's that's where the worst part right now about living in New York. If you're a renter, no one ever was bothered by renting before, but the uncertainty of what the market's going to look like whenever you need to renew your lease next is terrifying to people now. Fifteen years ago, that was just not the case. Yeah. Um, let's pivot in, into venture specifically. So the market's taking a beating today. Generally speaking, the economy has, has been poor. Um, how is that reflected in valuations that you're seeing? So there's the later stage valuations. So companies where we have a line of sight to, or we think we have a line of sight to being, let's call it, quote unquote, public markets ready. So let's just, let's just go ahead and just put a, a, a proxy line of doing, let's say, like $100 million or more in revenue. So you now you can see okay how is this company smart like there's fundamentals of that this business has there's no do they get product market fit they have it this is a real business it's spitting out cash flows you have EBITDA there's public market comparables there's much more data to be used yep. and you know what um, is that's a blessing and a curse because basically by the time a, a term sheet's issued on a later stage company, if there's a tremendous move in the market, like we're seeing right now, um, rewind back to you know the first crypto meltdown of the year. Um, what was that? Uh, you know, let's call that in May. Um, you know, the, there were technology stocks that were down 50, 60 percent over the right. course of 30 days, and so people, you know, those valuations came down because at the end of the day, you need to be compensated for that risk, and if your exit valuation expectations are much lower, you're gonna you're gonna reduce the price. Earlier stage is fascinating right now because you have you know imperfect data and you're really investing in the founder. You're investing in their ability to take this idea, which will probably not be the end product, but to navigate, execute times like this, be able to to tell the story, go go fundraise, go recruit people to come join a startup in this certain period of a lot of uncertainty. And you know the the market dictates valuations far more than than kind of fundamentals do, um, and a lot of people will say they're coming down. Valuations are coming down. Yeah, they are. They're coming down for the worst companies that were getting pitched by in our ranking system. And they, they maybe used to get term sheets because things were so crazy, and now they shouldn't get term sheets, and they're not. But the ones, if I'm ranking, you know, and keep in mind, I'm not. I don't want to say that the worst or the best. Just if I'm if I'm forced, gun to the head, to rank. What my the what I think the likelihood of success is for you know a set of ten companies that just happen to come in and pitch a, pitch me one day, um, you know I think that if it, if I were to say here's 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 the most fundable business idea so non contrarian concept something that is kind of an obvious uh, a playbook that has a success a founder that has exited twenty five companies already yeah. you know some kind of a, what would people would think is a no brainer some of these deals that have been de risked from a technical perspective or a team perspective like that are going for the same valuations that they were last year. They're, except for they're getting chased by more more funds, so they're actually way more competitive. Um, and you have people fighting, there, there are still deals that are getting done north of 50 million post with one million in revenue that top tier venture funds are competing over at the seed stage. And you know, then there are Series A companies that are doing three times typical revenue that a Series A company needs to prove product market fit that are raising at flat rounds. So it so, does. So how do you think about so? 
We have a world where either some valuations are down or at least some of the bad companies are kind of getting pushed aside. Um, is this a time where you think VCs should be aggressive and actively heavily investing, or do you think this is a time for real caution and, and inactivity? Uh, there's, uh, <clears throat> I think there's, bo there's both caution and being in, there, there's caution and there's downside in being inactive. So there's, there's kind of a downside to both of those scenarios, but is in what's happening and what, what I'm observing and <clears throat> is nobody's doing deals that are new to them. So it's, you know, not to say nobody, but then the pacing, the cadence, the number of checks being written is a fraction of, of the, the percentage or the number that was written last year. So let's say you're a partnership and typically you do four deals per partner per year. Let's just, I'm just making those numbers up. Right now, that, that number probably looks like one new deal per partner per year. But they're not just sitting around drawing outlines of their hands. They're, they're helping their companies that they've already invested in navigate this, this minefield of, of staying solvent, raising their next round, and telling their story. So a lot of time is being reallocated from sourcing and executing new deals to you know, playing a much more active role, because this is a much trickier situation when, then, when everything is up and to the right. Whenever things are just working for everybody, you know, CEOs that are younger, they they just they have more room to run, and you can spend more time sourcing deals right. versus the other way. So, do really big funds then have an advantage now, where they've got enough resources to work with their founders, provide services in lots of different ways, and still have a team that's constantly sourcing, or um, are they subject to the same problems as everyone else? I think that there's, there's a little bit of both. It matters what the company is looking for, right, at that point in time. Because right now, we went from a cottage industry to like a Chinese menu. It's like, okay, I want nobody's advice, no one's guidance, I just want the money. I want somebody that's gonna tell me everything and write a very small check. I want the middle, I want somebody that only does healthcare, I want somebody that's a generalist in New York. You can have your flavor of VC all day. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's two elements that drive decisions from, from, from founders about taking money from who. If they have options, there's the firm and what does that firm bring to the table and then there's the specific partner. Do I get along with the person that is about to lead my right. A, that's gonna be sitting on my board that is essentially I'm getting married to? And you know, hopefully, you win on both fronts, right? You're the, you, you develop the relationship, the found, you and the founder uh, understand each other, there's trust there and there's a genuine level of, 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 of partnership, but also your firm is very well positioned to drive a lot of value to this company at that particular stage. So whether you are helping them with their go-to-market strategy, whether you're helping them get acquired or get a path to exit, um, you know, your, the skills and the platform that you bring are typically reflective of your investment strategy. So you sit on a whole bunch of boards for us. Um, how would you say over the last, let's call it this calendar year roughly, your activity as a board member has changed compared to 2021? It's a great question. I, I mean, I think that there's this, the, um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, of uncertainty that founders have, and there's a lot of market checks that they would like to have. And, and there's something that, that we do just as a firm that uh, you know, I think is, should be a common practice with everybody. But like if, we, if we take a board seat with any founder, that's you know, a commitment that we're making to them, that, that they, they have our attention and our time, and we have biweekly meetings where we're not setting the agenda. Whatever they want to talk about, they talk about with us. And so I think that the level of communication and this is just something that we tell founders all the time, and we, you know, we kind of we 
practice our what we preach as well. Whenever things, whenever the markets are reacting in a way like this, where it's kind of relatively concerning to founders, let's say your investor base is spooked, the markets are down 1,200 points. How does this imp like? getting in front of investors and telling them what just giving them updates keeping them you should be tell you should never have more more open and frequent communication than whenever things are not going as planned whether it's at the company level or your industry or the macro level getting no one wants to be brought up to speed on you know on a series of events that have unfolded over six months that they're hearing about right now um, and it's something that that you know this is why people have boards this is where this is where you get the value. This is like help, help you know. It's it's our jobs to help mitigate you know potential risks that we've seen people you know people make mistakes. There's no need for for founders every single one of them to make them. And I think that founders have been taking advantage of that in a great way, leveraging their team, their boards, and what the VCs that sit on them. So in these situations. Do founders that are older and have experience have material advantage, or is it really just totally come back to the individual and there could be a 23-year-old that handles it just as well as a 45-year-old who's had four exits? So I think it really matters. It matters the, the role that that founder plays in the company and the stage of that business. So at the early stage, um, you know, there being there's something to be said about the founder that has two hands on the wheel that are very steady and nothing appears to spook them and you know they're taking measures they're making they're they're adjusting their businesses but there's no i like to always tell people like i i've yet to see a great decision made in a moment of panic and so it's you know that 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 clear communication to the team um you know is so reassuring to them and that's what makes truly exceptional founders and leaders um you know that is an advantage that comes with experience and something that you know it's it is hard to it's it is hard to match, as especially as a founder, you, your entire livelihood is riding on, on, on this concept, this idea, it's your identity that you've been building for years. And all of a sudden, that's under siege. And you, know, to, to, you need to put on that game face and that calm decision-making, um, you know, have that gravitas to make sure that everybody who works for you has conviction that you're gonna be able to sail this ship through the other side. And so that that's where you know somebody that doesn't have experience could show signs of of, of of you know of stress when maybe the cool, calm, collected person is who needed to show up that day. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know the likelihood of them raising another round of financing and and keeping the shoring up the balance sheet to make sure that payroll is being made. You can be calm and collected, but if you can't tell the story, you're gonna you're you're not gonna be able to raise another round. So you know there is a balance there and. Some of the, tru the, the, the truly great teams that we're always looking for have somebody that is you know, always exceptional at one, and then hopefully they're very self-aware and they know their blind side and they're hiring for that, and that's, that's their number two. So, and speaking about balance, one thing we've seen right now is VC sort of preaching publicly, privately, hey, we gotta get back to fundamentals, unit economics, profitability, we have to control costs, we have to be smart about debt, all these things. Um, in, say, a year ago, it was the opposite. It was just grow, 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 grow. Don't worry about monetization right now. Just figure out how to kind of keep acquiring more customers. Um, so the, the conventional view would be the mentality that we have today is sort of a better mentality because it's more conservative, more logical, more thoughtful. But it, is hockey stick growth 
shooting for that, is that always the wrong thing? I think that this is, I'm just going to go ahead and just do this. I'm just going to take a different approach to that, okay. that in the sense that I don't think that I've yet to, I'm trying to jot my memory for board meetings from 2020 and 2021. I don't think I ever heard anybody ever say, forget your unit economics, <laughs> throw money out the door and just grow at all costs. I think that we've always been rooted in, you know, I'm using air quotes here, fundamentals, because as an early stage investor, uh, you know, we're using KPIs, we're using like proxies of revenue, sometimes revenue, but, you know, steady state margins are, are, are something that is a, a, a directionally aspirational goal that we'll have. Um, there's only so much insight you can have. I think that what's going on now is that a lot of people, you know, in terms of, you know, cut your burn, don't, you know, growth at all, growth at all costs just became really expensive. Digital marketing is a fortune right now. So that's, that's where people are pulling back. Um, you know, there's a land of, of the reality is, is that it's harder to raise money right now. And some people have already done inside rounds. So you want to extend your runway as long as you can. And that's when you look at the, the haves and the, the must haves and the nice to have to home. Then you, that's where those changes are made. Um, and that's, and you're seeing that you're seeing that occur. That's just a, a typical business cycle. What I will say though, is that I don't think that, that, that people are VCs as investors are focusing on something different or looking for a different financial profile of a company. I think that what they're doing is they're trying to figure out what's going on. They're trying to, they're trying to make sure that their, that their portfolio is staying solvent. They're trying to figure out when they're going to go back to market and raise their next fund. Um, but also, you know, they're looking at, 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 at a portfolio and how they're being, they're being benchmarked uh, uh, from their portfolio companies right. that they're on the boards of. There's some career risk here. Making that, that, that investment, that incremental investment right now is, is something that is a partner level decision that maybe they want to take that risk, maybe they don't. I think that a big risk that is, has been introduced is financing risk, and that will go away. So if you're on the board of a company, you led their seed or series A, they're trying to raise an internal round, and you decide we're not going to participate. Is the company basically dead at that point? No, it's not. I mean, so there's there's a million reasons why this would happen. So it's you know there's there's let's say you I'm just going to give one one example. Let's say this is a company that you still believe in. This just the timing. They just need more time. You know, they figured it out. The founder that lesson learned. They just needed to pivot the business. And but the problem is is that you know, this is a fund five deal and, you know, you're investing out of your seventh vehicle and there's no more reserves left. There's nothing you can do. Now you can go raise a co-investment vehicle. You can go, there's a lot of, there, there's always a solution, yeah. but you know, uh, it's not as easy as just like, Hey, I just don't like you anymore. Um, you know, there's, there is, there is a level of, you know, um, continuing to back a business over and over and over again um, that that LPs don't that you know they want external firms to come in and value the business to validate that you know you're not just marking up your own deal right. which is valid and it's it's a it's a it's a check and a balance and let the market price it is not you know at the end of the day we are fiduciaries our our customers are our LPs and that's that's who we're that's who we serve and we serve founders on the other side of the spectrum but it sometimes doesn't work in perfect parallel, where you know the where where you can take on you know continuous support to to founders. But I do want to finish up the thought on the question before about the behaviors, and yep. so it's not the fundamentals. The way that deals are getting won has changed. 
So there are still a tremendous, a much higher number of VCs that are out there competing for the same number of deals now as there were before. Every year, more and more funds being created and more GPs that are out there chasing a finite number of really talented entrepreneurs. And the behaviors that we started to see were just offensive about how people were winning deals. Topping off at every, it didn't even matter what stage of the business, topping off the CEO so they're not taking dilution, providing secondary, there was a lot of, you know, quote unquote, founder friendly behaviors going on. And, you know, people, they, they, you know, valuations were driven up, but almost more importantly, the other terms and provisions that were is included in those term sheets that gave up governance, gave up control, gave up those board seats, you know, and protective provisions in downside scenarios um, are starting to pop up. So, so y you mentioned LPs. Um, in this now kind of more constricted economy, are they changing their mentality or allocations to venture? I think that that's. Uh, I think that the opposite. I would. If, you know, these are investors that they're they are long term. They're about as long term as they get, um, and thus they're going to be taking what was the What are the distributions from twenty twenty one? And now they're seeing you know a denominator effect that has really crushed technology uh, stocks and their the private portfolios that they're invested in. I, my expectation would be that they're increasing their allocations to, to VC, not decreasing. All right, from, from your mouth to God's ears. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, all right, so last question. You know, it seems like there are sort of a particular sector within venture will sort of capture the imagination. It's the year of crypto or the year of digital health or, you know, delivery or whatever it is. Um, if you had to just predict one for 2023, since we're now almost at Q4 of 2022, what do you think it might be? The, so of 2023, what, what it, this is, you know, uh, 2023 is like so far away right now. I would say that I think that what we're going to see is we're going to see um, some areas that were really, really exciting um, where we saw some big companies being built, but they were more at the, the base layer, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, that an enabling technology is just invited to build on top of it. Um, and I think that what we're going to see is, um, if I, it, where, where I'm, I'm going to lay this bet on from an excitement perspective, is going to be the year of, 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 of healthcare technology operational infrastructure and APIs that are built on top of them, where all of a sudden there is transparency that no one has ever seen before with regards to pricing, with regards to claims data, with regards to outcomes, and people actually, for the first time, be able to take control of all their healthcare data and, uh, with, with, and house it in, on their phone if they want to. I personally don't, but it will enable a tremendous amount of multi-billion dollar companies yeah, to be built. I, I, I will tell the listeners, so Jordan's been talking about this idea it's for a while. 2023 now. is He's the really, year. really <laughs> focused on this, but obviously that, that fits our portfolio really well. So, all right, Jordan, thanks as always for coming. Thanks for having me.